<clears throat> so um, some people really seem to just come alive uh, when they run, and they love to run. You know, some people love to run short distances. Some people love to run long distances. I don't want to brag, but I, I, I can't do either of those things. And so, um, but some people really just really love to run. And, uh, you know, and as far as American athleticism, uh, the date April 19th, 2014, uh, was, is a really, uh, really significant date. 38,000 runners assembled for the Boston Marathon. And this was a really significant event and really emotional event because this came one year after the terrorist attack the year before. All right? and, so, uh, and so to add to the emotion of the event, uh, the winner of the Boston Marathon was an American athlete named Meb uh, Keflesky. And, uh, and as, as, as Meb crossed the finish line and won the Boston Marathon, he became the first American to win the race since 1983. And at the age of 38 years old, he was the oldest Boston Marathon winner in 83 years. All right. He had the names of the, of the, uh, the, the, the victims of the previous year's attack written on his bib. Um, and uh, and, and, and this, as he crossed the finish line in first place, this was this joyful an emotional moment. He, he, he drops down to the ground and it looks like he's going to start doing push-ups, but he just kisses the ground. And then he gets up and he ra- he's a believer, he's a Christian. He raises his hands to the air um, in joy and gratitude. People are chanting his name. People are chanting USA, USA. It's dramatic. It's powerful. And in Philippians chapter 3, um, Paul uses this running metaphor, this running image to describe the Christian life. Uh, Philippians 3 verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, Paul writes, or I'm already perfect, but I press on, he says, to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, he's saying Jesus has caught me and now I'm just chasing the one who's already, who's already caught me. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, so Paul in Philippians 3 is urging Christians um, to, to view the Christian life like a race. And, and he's urging us to humbly acknowledge, no matter how long we've been walking with Jesus, no matter who we are, just to humbly acknowledge, I have not arrived yet. I'm not there yet. Uh, he's, he's urging us to, to passionately pursue Jesus all the way through the finish line. To keep our eyes uh, fixed on, on Jesus. And so, so as we think about the Christian life like a race, I just want you to ask yourself, how is my race going? Um, am I running towards the goal or am I sincerely running the wrong direction? Uh, where are your eyes focused? Where are your eyes fixed? Are you going to finish your race strong? I share this today because we're talking about Noah. We're talking about a man who's characterized by faithfulness. Um, he's a powerful example of faithfulness to God, but he's also a frightening example of how easily our hearts can wander from God. Noah ran an incredible race, but kind of right before the end of his race, he trips up. Noah's life is a witness to God's faithfulness, and it's a warning of our wandering hearts. Noah's life is a witness to God's faithfulness and a warning of our wandering hearts. And so just think about your life right now. If you think about where you are right now, um, if somebody was reading your script of your life story, if somebody was reading your life story right now, would it be a witness to the faithfulness of God or would it be a warning to others? Do not, do not live this way. Is your life a wit? All of our lives are a witness 
or a warning. And often our lives are simultaneously a witness and a warning. Uh, so we want to first just kind of look at Noah's context. What's Noah's context? And we're going to find his context or his, his situation in which he lived. We're going to find that in, in Genesis 6, verse 5. We read, uh, this is a few generations after Adam, after the rebellion in the wilderness, after exile from the, or, excuse me, rebellion in the garden, after exile from the, from the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 6, 5, there's this assessment of humanity. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God's assessment of humanity in the days of Noah was that it's like a neon sign flashing on the human heart that says all evil all the time. The, the, the thought and intentions of, man heart, of man's heart is evil continually. And we're told that God regretted. He's sorrowful that he created humanity. And he, he determines to judge humanity and to flood the earth, kind of return the earth to this pre-creation uh, uh, abyss, watery, uh, watery abyss, and kind of create, send creation back to the, to, to, the, to the place where it came from and cleanse the earth. He determines to just do away with all life um, and, and to judge. Uh, violence and immorality in the days of Noah and continuing through today have spread through uh, the earth like a plague. And God sees uh, these days of Noah, and he's saddened that he created man. Creation has become corrupted, and, 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 and God judges humanity and determines to, to flood the earth. But Noah found favor with God. So the, the story of Noah and the flood is one of the first stories we learn in children's church, right? And, and it's, you know, a lot of times you go into a church nursery or a children's wing, and there's going to be pictures of the ark and the animals, and it's, it's cute, and, and there's kindly old Noah, and, and we really tell this cute story of all the, and, and, and it, it's a beautiful story, but this is a pretty dark story. It's a real flood, this was real judgment, a lot of people, a lot of real people really died as God brought judgment to the earth. It's a dark story. Um, and, and it's a story of real judgment. And almost every culture on earth has a flood story. Isn't that interesting? Almost every culture on earth tells some story about this great flood that covered the earth. Um, and, so, and so that, and it's, even, if you're, even if you're skeptical about the, the uh, reliability of the scripture, the fact that the Bible says it and almost every culture on earth also tells a flood story, that adds to the, the, just to the historical evidence that this is rooted in a, in a, in a real event. But there's some real differences between the flood story we read in Genesis and the other ancient flood stories that were floating around, no pun intended, but, um, like that. but um, some of the other flood stories that were floating around uh, pictured kind of capricious, uh, envious gods who, who were afraid that man was going to overpower them or they, they wanted just to control the population of man and they open up these floodgates and then they can't control the flood and the flood gets away from them. And in contrast to that, God's judgment we see here in Genesis 6 through 9 is not an act of envy, but it's, it's an act of justice. It's an act of judgment. It's an act rooted in deep sorrow over sin and violence, and sadness, death, oppression. Um, also, we see in the flood narrative here, God is being totally in control of all the events. We see that God is sovereign. He, he decides when the rain starts. He decides when the rain stops. He decides when to blow his rock, his, his breath, his wind, his spirit to dry up the waters. Uh, he is sovereign. He leads Noah and the animals onto the, and the family onto the ark, and he, he shuts the door behind them. This story, this narrative really emphasizes the sovereignty of God. And I take comfort in that when I'm going through stuff 
stuff that I just can't comprehend and I can't understand. I take a lot of comfort in the fact that God is reliable, God is faithful, God is sovereign, God's in charge, okay? And so this is a story of judgment, but this is also a story of mercy. This is also a story of mercy. Uh, We see mercy in this story because, you know, God didn't have to rescue Noah and his family, but he did. He didn't have to rescue anybody, but he did. And so whenever God judges, there's always mercy mingled in with a judgment. He could have just totally given up on his creation, but he doesn't. So we see his justice, we see his mercy, and we see God's sovereignty. So that's Noah's context. He, 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 he's living in a really godless time. But, but the next thing we read uh, after Noah's context is we read about Noah's character, and we read that he's blameless and he walks with God, and he's righteous towards God and others. So even though everybody around Noah is evil and wicked, Noah doesn't use that as an excuse. He walks with God. And so you may find yourself in really, we may find ourselves in really godless situations at times. Um, but, but what we find in Noah is that he's walking with God, even though people are godless all around him. And so in verse 9 we read, uh, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So there's three uh, kind of descriptions given of Noah. He's, he's righteous. That's the sense that he has relationship with God and he treats people fairly. He's blameless. That, that doesn't have, that's not the idea of he's perfect, but it's the sense of, it's the Hebrew word tamim. He is whole. He, he is who he says he is. Um, he's he's, um, he's uh, integrated. He's putting all of his energy into one pursuit. He's, he's characterized by wholehearted commitment. In other words, Noah is all in with God. And so I, I, I think about the, the movie City Slickers and, 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 and Jack Palance's character uh, says, the secret of life is this. And Billy Crystal says, the secret of life is your finger? And he says, no, one thing. Noah is characterized by one thing. He's characterized by passionately pursuing God. I just, I just ask you to think about what's your one thing. What's that, and Justin touched on this earlier, what's that one thing that you think about, that you, that you eat, sleep, and breathe? What's that one thing for you? What are you passionately pursuing? So Noah is not perfect, but he is passionately pursuing one thing. We tend to approach life like a buffet, Anybody in here love a good buffet? I mean, I know I love me. A, I love a buffet. And, and this is also why I don't run, by the way. There's some connection here. Um, we like to t- maybe a little materialism, maybe a strong helping of Southern values, bless your heart, uh, a side of self-sufficiency, and maybe we just drizzle a little Jesus on top of everything, but not too much Jesus because we don't want to be weirdos, right? And, and that doesn't, this buffet approach to our faith, does not transform anybody. It does not save anybody. It does not rescue anybody. It, it's, it's weak and it's powerless. In the midst of a godless generation, Noah walks with God. That's, and that's the, kind of the climax of the description of Noah. We find that he walks with God. And that kind of takes us back to Adam and how Adam uh, walked with God. And this image bearer of God, he walks with God in the garden. All right, And so Noah has this call. God calls Noah. Verse 10, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them uh, with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. 
Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length is to be 300 cubits. So that's like one and a half times the length of the Mustang bowl, right? Its breadth is 50 cubits and its height is 30 cubits, three stories high. It's a big boat. Make a roof for the ark and finish it a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with a lower and second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. So God uh, calls Noah to do this crazy thing, this very specific task. This task that, that clearing all this land by hand and 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 and, and uh, Stripping this, uh, this rough wood down to lumber and, and building this gigantic boat, this is going to take a long time, right? This would take years and years and years, and this is a very specific task. But I believe that Noah's obedience to God uh, kind of began way before he got this really specific assignment. A lot of us kind of, we are, are kind of sitting around on the sidelines saying, well, when God tells me what he wants me to do, I'll jump up and do it. Anybody just kind of waiting for God to show you exactly what it is you need to do. But there's all this stuff that God has called all of us to do, right? He's called us all to make disciples of the nations, go into the world, make disciples of all the nations. He's called you to be empowered by his spirit. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's called you to love your neighbor and to love your enemy. He's called you to love him before you love him. He's called you to seek him. Uh, he's called you uh, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And it's in the context of living out this general stuff that we're all called to that we discover maybe that specific task that God has for us. Um, and so God calls Noah to build this, this gigantic boat, and by faith Noah chases God, even though he looks like a fool. Anybody like looking like a fool in here? Isn't that like our deepest fear? Um, and yet Noah is going to chase God, even if it means looking foolish. And so Genesis 7 verse 15 says, um, they went into the ark with Noah. God calls them into the ark. They go into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded, and the Lord shut him in. I love this. Uh, God sovereignly calls all these animals, commands Noah and his family, and they go into the ark, they enter the ark, and then we're told that God seals them in. God shuts the door behind them. And we're going to come back to that here in a little while. So we, we've seen Noah's context, his, his character, his call, and now let's look at his covenant. Uh, God makes a covenant agreement with Noah. All right, and so, so um, this is more than 40 days on the ark here, okay? There's rain and all that. They get on the ark, then there's some days, and there's 40 days of rain, and then they're like on the ark for uh, a long time, and by the time you add up all the, all the date here, they end up being on this ark like a year, okay? The 40 days and 40 nights that we read about is just how long it rained, okay? There were probably moments in this journey from the moment of building the ark to the moment of sitting on the ark to the moment of floating around on the ark where Noah probably thought that God had forgotten all about him. Just like there were moments in the prison that Joseph thought that God had forgotten all about him. There was moments in the belly of the, of the whale that Jonah thought that God had forgotten all about him. And there's going to come a time in every faithful person's life that you're going to feel that maybe God has forgotten you. There's going to come a time in every faithful person's life that it's going to feel like God has forgotten you. But we read the hinge of this Noah narrative, the center point of the story. And this is a really put together story. It's well done, well written, well told. 
The hinge of the story is at chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. God remembered Noah. Does that mean God forgot Noah? Well, it certainly probably felt that way. But when we read that God remembers somebody, there's the sense here when he remembers, it's the sense that he is choosing to act in deliverance towards someone that he loves. God remembers Noah. This is a sense that he is choosing to act on Noah's behalf. He's choosing to rescue and deliver on the behalf of someone that he loves. So God remembers Noah. That's where this whole story hinges. And then God's gonna, uh, God's gonna set the boat on dry land and, 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 and it's kind of like you ever are on this long road trip and you stop with a family or a bunch of people and you stop at, or like a church van, and you stop at a, at a gas station and everybody just flies out. That's kind of what I picture the ark resting on this mountain and the door opens and like everybody just rolling out the door as fast as they can. And God makes a covenant agreement with Noah in chapter 9 verse 7. He, 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 Noah makes sacrifices to God, he worships God, and then God tells Noah in chapter, Genesis chapter 9 verse 7, you, he says, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Noah's given the same commission that Adam was given in the garden, be fruitful and multiply. And it's the fulfilled commission that Jesus tells us. This, when Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them, it's the fulfillment of this commission that Adam was given and that Noah was given. This is how we multiply on the earth, through making disciples. He says, he says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Um, he says, I will st- establish, verse 9, my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Now, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. And, and, when, and when God says to Noah, I'm making a covenant with you, he's saying I'm making an agreement with you. So marriage is a covenant. It's an agreement. Um, when God makes a covenant, he makes promises and he makes demands and he gives us the grace that we need in order to meet the demands. Um, and this covenant with Noah points back to the original covenant with Adam, but it points forward to a covenant that's going to come between God and Abram and then Moses and eventually a new and better covenant with Jesus. And, and, and when God makes a covenant with somebody, God um, makes these promises, but there's this expectation on, on, on Noah, and then on Abram, and then on David, and on Israel, there's this expectation that they would be faithful. And what we're going to read at the end of Noah's story is that Noah, Noah's not faithful at the end. He's not faithful to the end. Abram's not faithful. Israel's not faithful. David's not faithful. And so we're left needing this faithful one who's going to come and be faithful to the end. All right, so every human being who's ever lived has failed to be faithful, so we needed a better covenant. We needed a better deliverer. We needed someone who would be faithful. And that's why we say that Jesus is better than Noah. So Noah, God makes his covenant with Noah, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this rainbow, remember, I'm going to put this rainbow in the sky, and that's going to remind me that I'm not going to destroy the earth by flood again, and I make this covenant agreement with you. It's this incredible hint, this incredible thread of mercy at the end of the story. But then the story ends in a strange way. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. No, we don't really have all the details of what's going on here. Some have theories, and, and some of the theories are pretty weird. Um, but in chapter 9, verse 20, we see Noah crash. Um, 
And, you know, often we say that more mountain climbers die coming down the mountain than they do going up the mountain. There's something about a victory that we can often tumble after that. And, and, and Noah has lived a faithful life, but here at the end of his life, he kind of gets, well, he, he takes his eye off the prize. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil. So far, so good, right? It's good to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. So far, so good, right? He drank of the wine. All the, all the moms in the room are like, man, thanks, Noah. We love you, Noah. You're awesome, right? So he, becomes a, a, he starts planting a vineyard, and he makes some wine, and, and he starts drinking some wine, and all this is fine. But then he starts misusing. And any technology we get, whether it's vineyard and, or, or wine or whether it's an iPhone, can be used for God's glory or it can be misused and twisted. He becomes drunk and lay naked and uncovered in his tent. So it's interesting. Adam and Eve end up naked and ashamed. God starts over with the best man on the planet and he ends up Drunk, naked, and ashamed. Because God has changed the environment. The world has been cleansed. But Noah's heart is still bent like Adam's heart. Noah needed more than a new environment. He needed a new heart. And that's something that only Jesus can give us. God starts all over with the best man on earth. And at the end of the story, he's passed out drunk and naked. And his son, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of the father and told his two brothers outside. Maybe he's taunting, maybe he's making fun of his dad. He goes, we're not sure exactly what happens. But Shem and Japheth are very respectful of their father. They take a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walk backward and cover the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger, youngest son had done to him, he cursed his son and grandson. Strange story, bizarre story. We don't have all the details of this story, but here's what we know. Noah ends up naked and exposed. There's a curse. There's family strife. There's family brokenness. God started over with the best man on earth, and the Adam story continued to play out because Noah needed more than new circumstances. He needed a new heart. You and I need more than new circumstances. We need a new heart. Um, so Noah's life is a witness to God's faithfulness and it's a warning of our wandering hearts so Jesus is better let's think about Noah's life and how Noah is a witness in so many ways Noah is a witness to us because he walks with God even when nobody else was he's willing to look foolish he's wildly obedient until he's not He's a witness to parents. Let's, if you're a parent or a grandparent or a step-parent or a foster parent, let's just tune in. You know, last night I picked up uh, Ava from a dance, uh, and Selma picked them up from a dance last night. And um, in a weak moment, they asked, Ava asked if she could go to a dance, and in a weak moment I said yes, and then I was like, why did I say I would let this happen? What have I done? And so Sonda dropped you know, Ava and Selma off, and I was threatening that when I picked them up, I was going to come up and show off some of my moves, you know, on the dance floor, you know, and I said I would just kind of come in like this, you know, and kind of, kind of throw them a rope, and we could all just kind of leave, and, um, and Ava was saying, I will say that I don't know you, and Selma was like, oh, he sounds just like my dad, that's something my dad would do, and, and so parents are embarrassing, right? 
It's just part of how God has called us, okay? And so, can you imagine? I mean, Ava was like, oh, dad, oh, you know. I'm like, hey, you know what? Can you believe that most people's dads aren't as cool as me? Isn't that sad? And she's just like, oh. You know, and so, can you imagine being Noah's family? Oh, dad, God, why are you buying, why are you building this boat, dad? Ugh. But, you know, he's not trying to look cool for his kids. He's seeking to be faithful to God. Noah leads his kids to the ark, and God seals them in. Parents, grandparents, step-parents, foster parents, anybody think you might be a parent one day, your job is to lead your family to Jesus and then trust God to seal the door behind them. Your job is to lead them to Jesus and then trust Jesus to rescue them. Trust Jesus to save them. Trust Jesus to seal the door behind them. Maybe we think, you know what, I, I grew up in a broken home situation. I, don't, I, didn't see, I didn't have a godly example. Anybody know who Noah's dad was? Noah's dad was this guy named Lamech who bragged about how many fights he's been in and how many people that he killed. Lamech was not a godly man. And yet Noah's, Noah's cycle was different. Noah's family was different. You are not doomed or imprisoned to repeat the sins of your parents. You are not doomed to repeat the failings of your parents. Because in Christ, you become new. In Christ, those chains are broken. And you're not going to be a perfect parent. But you're not doomed to repeat the family cycles of your past. Jesus has broken that curse. And Jesus makes you new. And so if you had godly example, if you didn't have godly example, either way, God calls you parents to lead your kids to the ark, to lead your kids to the cross, and to trust Jesus to seal them there. Noah's life is also a warning. He doesn't finish well. He, after so much goodness, he kind of takes his eyes off the finish line, again, ends up naked and drunk. He's not totally faithful, and neither is any human after him. And, you know, I think about so, so many conversations I have with people and, and I think about so many of us and, 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 and I, I just plead with you however old you are or however young you are let's finish well let's finish strong um, let's not turn our eyes inward and selfish and, and, and stumble before we get to the finish line I just want to I want to um, you know mention Betty Sorrell as just one example um, Miss Betty, I'm not going to say how old she is because she'll kill me in my sleep, okay? And she knows where I live. But Miss Betty is up here every Wednesday night feeding a couple hundred kids and, and youth every Wednesday night. And she could have said, you know what? Man, I retired from that 20 years ago. She could say that. But she's, she's going to finish her race. What's it mean for you to finish your race? What's it mean for you to serve until the end to abide in Christ until the end. So Noah ends up not being faithful. No human after him is faithful. And finally Jesus arrives. The true Israelite, the true human, God and man. And for the first time in forever, somebody is faithful. He institutes a new covenant bought with his own blood. And he pledges to write his word on our hearts and transform us from the inside out. So Jesus is better than Noah as we close He's characterized by better obedience. Jesus is obedient all the way to the cross and beyond. He's characterized by better faithfulness. You know, Noah's faithfulness rescues eight people. 
That's nothing to sneeze at. Man, if you can get to the end of your life and say, I rescued eight people, that's amazing. But Jesus' faithfulness makes a way for all who believe to be rescued. Jesus uh, makes a better sacrifice. Noah sacrificed his time and his reputation and his wealth. Jesus sacrifices his own life. Jesus gives us a better covenant. He pours out his own blood and his own body is broken so that we could be called children of God, sons and daughters of God. I love the Jesus Storybook Bible. I refer to it a lot, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And in the story about Noah, she writes, At last the boat landed quite suddenly on top of a great mountain. As soon as it was safe, God said, Out you come! And so they did, everyone skipping and dancing onto dry land. The first thing Noah did was to thank God for rescuing them, just like he'd promised. And the first thing God did was make another promise, I won't destroy the world this way again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I have hung up my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again. But God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan. A plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. Whenever we see that rainbow in the sky, whenever we see that war bow in the sky, we remember that that rainbow, that war bow is pointing up at God himself, not down at us. And when God does does take out his judgment and his vengeance, he takes it out on his own son so that he could trade places with all who believe. Will you be foolish enough to believe that God would take your filthy rags and would give you his own righteousness? Would you be foolish enough to believe that God wants to write his word on your heart and change you from the inside out? How's God calling you to be a fool? How can you finish strong, whether you are eight or 80? How can you fix your eyes on Jesus by the grace of God and finish your race strong? If somebody's reading your life story right now, is it a witness of God's faithfulness or is it a warning of human folly? Have you come to the cross by faith? And are you leading others there? The band's coming up and we're going to close with great is his faithfulness. Are you leading others to the cross and trusting Jesus to seal them there? So what's your next step? Is it to place your trust in Jesus? Is it to follow him in baptism? Is it to commit to our church family as a member and say, I want to go through the class. I want to, I want to be a, 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 a member here at Trinity. I want to be part of the mission here. Maybe you just need to pray. Pray.